Welcome to Weston's Sermon Podcast of the Week. We are so glad you've joined us today. If you have been encouraged by our ministry and would like to support us financially, you can do so at westonroadchurch.com slash give. Thanks for joining us this week, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Well, good morning. Let's put our hands together for Jesus this morning. It is so good, so, so good. Uh, to worship with all of you here at Western Road. Uh, the last time I was here was many, many years ago um, when uh, Pastor Michael was um, leading the church. And uh, I am so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you again, uh, Pastor Jonathan and Priscilla. You know, I'm so grateful for their leadership and um, have the opportunity to call Pastor John a friend and um uh, get to spend time with him and connect and just uh, really blessed to hear uh, what the Lord is doing here at Weston. Even uh, from the last time I was here, a lot of things have changed uh, physically in the in the building for sure, but also lots of new faces. And so uh, praise Jesus for all of the people that God has brought into this church uh, over the past many years. And so uh, it's my joy and privilege to be able to uh, teach from God's Word this morning. Um, um, I want to bring greetings to my wife, Trisha. Uh, I'm not sure if we have the picture up uh, that I'd sent, uh, just so you guys can see uh, the family. So that's my wife, Trisha. And uh, Lauren is uh, five now, and she's... Uh, sitting with me, and Catherine is three. So that's my family, and uh, uh, they couldn't be here uh, this morning, but, uh, uh, you know, we're so grateful that we get to do ministry uh, together as a family. So uh, I want to get us right into God's Word. Um, John chapter 9 is where we're going to be, the Gospel of John chapter 9. So we're going to be in the New Testament for a bit, and then in Uh, the Old Testament as well. So we're going to sort of uh, work through two passages of Scripture um, as we talk about the idea of having missional urgency in everything we do in our walk with Jesus. So John chapter 9, and I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 7. It says this, as he passed by, he saw a blind man Uh, sorry, a a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work Verse 4, the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So obviously a miracle that Jesus does during his ministry. He's done many of these miracles. Uh, And what's significant here is the healing of the blind is something that Jesus exclusively does compared to the Old Testament. You know, it's not one of those things that people had seen. If you read 
the biblical narrative across the Old Testament books, the 39 books of the Old Testament, you don't find uh, the healing of the blind. But Jesus does the healing of the blind multiple times. In fact, it's the number one thing that he heals throughout the gospel narrative. And so Jesus is healing a blind man, which we'll get to in a moment about the significance of the, of the healing of his eyes. Uh, but Jesus says something in the midst of this conversation about healing and, 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 and uh, works and sin and why this man is blind and all of this, Jesus is communicating something to his disciples that I think as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to consider uh, this morning. And he says, let me read this again for you in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming. The idea of night is coming. The idea of darkness is upon us. The idea that, of course, from one hand, you know, there's this, there's this sense that there's a spiritual battle happening, Jesus says, and the spiritual forces of darkness are seemingly going to win for a moment. There's that spiritual significance of it. But there's also the natural side to what Jesus is saying. He's basically saying, guys, you don't realize it yet, but I'm actually not going to be with you for too long. Night is coming for my time time on the earth and while it is day while I am with you I've got to do what I need to do I've got to fulfill the teachings and the works that the father has given me to fulfill before it is my time to leave this world and I read this and I said, you know, this is really, really helpful if you are a follower of Jesus. The idea of night is coming. What he's saying to his disciples is, listen, everything you do, I want you to do it with a sense of urgency. So if you're opening blind eyes, if you're healing paralytics, if you are raising the dead, if you are baptizing believers, if you are teaching followers, if you are casting out devils, do whatever you do with a sense of urgency because you don't have unlimited limited time night is coming for you and me that's the reality by the way uh, if you're not used to my preaching uh, I can get excited and I am really happy for you to get excited with me if you're the quiet kind go ahead and be quiet and take your notes that's great but if you're the kind that like the right like to cheer in church go ahead and say an amen can I hear an amen I love it. Okay. And so, you know, this happened to me the other day. I, I, so I travel. Part of my role with Village Church is that I travel to BC once a month, um, where sort of our main sites are. And uh, I teach there. And then that teaching is, is broadcast to all of our other locations the following week. So I do this every, every month. I make this trek out to uh, Vancouver. And so this one time, I was out in Vancouver a few months ago. And uh, I get to the airport. I pick up my rental car. And I'm driving along to Surrey. Our church is based in Surrey, so it's about a 35-40 minute drive from Vancouver Airport, and uh, as I'm driving, it's about 10 a.m., 11 a.m. in the morning, as I'm driving, I've, my car experiences a mechanical failure, and because of the mechanical failure, I have to pull over to the side of a highway. Now, mind you, when we say a highway in Ontario, in Toronto, uh, you know, it's the 401 with 25 lanes or something, I don't know exactly, but you know, 30 lanes, whatever we have, but they, uh, when they say a highway, it's like four lanes, basically like two and two, right? So anyways, it's a highway, but people are still going 100 kilometers, 120 kilometers an hour. And I pull to the side of the highway and I call the car rental company and say, this is what's going on. I can't, you know, the car won't move and I need help. And so uh, they say they're going to call me back and back and forth with the tow truck company and all this stuff. But as I'm sitting there, and I've never actually experienced this before. It's the first time in my life that it, I was like on the side of a highway sort of waiting for uh, roadside assistance. And so as I'm sitting there, you know, the truck's going past me, you know, you can almost feel it, the 
cars shaking, you know, the, when, when these massive trucks are going past you. And uh, all of a sudden, I looked in my rearview mirror, and I see this car. I don't know what was going on. Maybe the guy was distracted. The driver was distracted. But I look in the rearview mirror, and he's coming. And I'm, I'm actually, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm pulled over on a curve of Highway 91. So, you know, obviously, you've got you to turn your wheel if you're not, not going to go over on the sidewalk. Well, um, I, under the shoulder of the highway, I, I'm sitting there looking at my rearview mirror, and all of a sudden, this car has gone off the road, is on the shoulder, coming at me at, I don't know, 80, 90, 100 kilometers an hour. Guys, I cannot express to you the sense of panic and fear that got a hold of me in that moment. Like, he literally, I mean, obviously, I'm here, so he didn't hit me, okay? Um, but he pulled back onto the, onto the uh, highway, onto the lane, like literally with seconds. It, when he passed me, it was like I could reach out and touch that vehicle. That's how close it was. And you know when, when something like that happens, right? And you are almost in an accident or whatever, all of a sudden your heart is racing, right? Your pulse is going like crazy. Like sweat is, is coming off your brows. Like literally I'm sitting there like hyperventilating. I, in fact, I called 911 right away. And, I, and, the, and the, you know, the person was like, what's your emergency? I said, I'm stuck on the side of a highway. I'm waiting for roadside assistance. I'm done waiting. Get me out of here. Literally. So the cops come in and they, they basically help me get off the highway. But here's my point. That moment at 38 years old on the side of Highway 91 could have been my night moment. I wouldn't have known. You know, the next day I was preaching about it at our church, and obviously I talked to our church about it. And then after service was done in the lobby, we have a ton of people who do long-haul trucking and stuff. And they were, these guys were telling me how, you know, blessed I was to not have been involved in an accident. Because they were telling me of all the instances where people have pulled off to the side of the highway and trucks would come or cars would come or drunk drivers would come. And it's basically death instantly. Here's my point. Here's my point. You don't know is my point. I was just having a great day like any other day. I go to Vancouver every month. I pull up, pick up a rental car every, time, every, every month when, I do, when, I'm, when I'm there. And there was no way I could have known that this may have been the day. You don't know the day. You don't know the time. You don't know the hour. And what Jesus is saying is everything you do, it doesn't that you should do something differently, but everything you do, you ought to do it with a sense of urgency. The decisions you make will be different when you understand that I don't have unlimited time. You know, one of my favorite movies uh, is uh, the movie Interstellar. I don't know if you guys have watched Interstellar. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. It's, uh, it's a fascinating movie fa you know, in, in, so, in so many levels, at so many levels. But part of the storyline of the movie, the plot line is uh, there's this blight that has covered the earth and has destroyed all the crops. And Matthew McConaughey has to leave Earth to go find another planet. And they ask him to do it because I think he was a pilot or whatever. And they ask him if he would do it and he doesn't want to go. He says, no way, no way, no way. Eventually, when he recognizes that his children only have so much longer to live if he doesn't take action, he decides he's going to leave his children behind, which he didn't want to do. And he's going to go on this mission to trying to find another planet. And there's this moment where he leaves his daughter and his son. And, the, and his daughter especially just absolutely does not want to let her dad go. But he's like, I've got to do this. See, sometimes when you and I understand the limitations that we have in this world, the limited time we have, we prioritize things differently. When we understand 
the eternal, the generational ramifications of the decisions we make today. See, he, in the movie, he had to make decisions. He's like, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my children and their children. I've got to make difficult decisions today. I've got to sacrifice. Listen to me. I've got to sacrifice today for the sake of what God wants to do in my children's life. For the sake of what God wants to do in my grandchildren's life. For the sake of what God wants to do in my city, in my community. This idea, this sense that we live for something more than this moment. And what does Jesus say about night? He says, because it's night, I must work. W-O-R-K. It's a word we don't like in church. Because somehow we bought into the idea, you know, it is by grace that you are saved and it is not by work so that no one can boast. And so everyone is like, hey, I just need to show up. I just need to worship. I just need to give a little bit of money in the offering basket. I just need to come to prayer meeting. Maybe not every week. That's too much. You know, everyone knows that's too much. Maybe once a month. Right? I'll just go to this couple of special services or whatever I'll do. Maybe I'll give some money to people in my community. And that's all I need to do because it's all by grace. He loves me. I don't need to work. Guys, the New Testament is the opposite. All these guys, all Jesus and his disciples and their disciples were all people that had the sense of I need to do everything I can. Paul in 2 Corinthians, we're teaching through 2 Corinthians in our church and he talks about all of the things he has endured for the gospel. He says, I was whipped and I went hungry and I was shipwrecked and I almost died. And I, he's like, he's basically listing the works that he has done for the sake of the mission of God. I must work because night is coming. Are you working? Not, 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 not to gain favor with God, but from favor with God. And, and I love what Jesus says in John 15. Listen to this, John 15 too. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. By this, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to see, to be my disciples. Prove to be my disciples. What he's saying is you should reasonably expect transformation in the life of someone who says they follow Jesus. Right? There isn't cheap grace. This idea of, well, he loves me so much, I can just live any way I want to live. Jesus says, uh-uh. If you are connected to a branch, you are going to produce fruit. If there is no production of fruit in your life, you're probably not connected to the branch. Are you, are you, to the vine. You're the branch, he's the vine. If you're not connected to the vine, you're not going to produce. And so a lot of people say, I'm connected, but I just give money to the people that produce. You know, some, you know those people in church? Pastor, my job is to fund the people that produce. Uh-uh. No, we all are called to be witnesses. We're all called to step out and be on mission for the sake of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to his apprentices and this is right before he heads to the cross and, and what he's saying is, I need you to know guys that you're a branch and just saying you're a branch isn't going to do it. You've, your life ought to have, listen, visible, tangible, measurable evidence that you're connected to me visible tangible measurable evidence that you're connected to Jesus 
One writer says it this way, God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion, namely a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying His supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. All the spheres of our life. Why do we not work? Or two reasons. One is because we get too comfortable. Just want to take it easy. Just want to enjoy my life. I just want to, you know, Jesus suffered so I don't have to. Have you heard that one? Yeah, that's a big one. You know, and that's part of the challenge with, you know, what is often called prosperity gospel, right? Because the, the, the problem isn't that God blesses or doesn't bless. Of course God blesses and God provides and, and God heals and, and all of that. But, but the problem sometimes is if the end result of all of that is so you can live a better life, you can have a more comfortable life, then that theology is misplaced. Because in that, based on that, Paul... Didn't experience too much of God's grace, I suppose. None of the apostles experienced God's blessing like they should have. Because why did they have to suffer if Jesus suffered for them? They didn't have to become martyrs. That makes no sense then. No, 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 no. That's not the biblical understanding of the blessing of God. Paul talks about it and he says, If Christ suffered, you have a model on how to suffer well. If Christ gave up His glory in heaven, you have a model of how to give up of the things you rightfully could do for the sake of those who don't know Jesus. And, and, and of course, the second thing is fear. A lot of people are paralyzed by what if? What if I'm rejected? What if I'm ostracized? What if people mock me? I don't want to step out and do the works of God. What if? What if it doesn't work out the way I hope it will? So now let's go to the Old Testament. I'm going to, I want to use a, a story in 2 Kings as sort of a, um, the, the framework to talk about the idea of how do we step into what God's called us to do. 2 Kings chapter 7 um, and verse 3 to verse 11, 2 Kings chapter 7, uh, verse 3 uh, to 11. I'm going to read it for you. It says this, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city. And we shall die there. And if we sit here, we shall die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Love how they say that. I mean, read that again. If they spare our lives, we shall live. But if they kill us, we shall but die. So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they came at the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. And so, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us uh, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come up against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. 
And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off the things from it and went and hid them. That's verse 8. Verse 9, then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come let's go and tell the king's household. So they came and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the, key, then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. Here's, here's, here, here's what, what happens in the story. Um, the Syrians have besieged, have see, laid siege on, the, on Israel, on the city. And there is no food, there is no water, there is no sustenance. People are literally dying. Part of the storyline is that people are literally becoming cannibals. Because they're, they're, they're literally eating each other kind of because they, they don't have food. They're starving. They have no, they have no ability to sustain themselves. And... Um, while this is happening, there are these four lepers, okay? So leprosy is a condition where you will eventually die, of course, at a faster rate than an average healthy person would. Um, and they're also in a famine, like they're part of the city. They don't have food. And they begin to have this conversation among themselves. They say, if we stay here, we're going to die. If we go back in the city, there's no food there. So guess what's going to happen? We're going to die. If we go to the Syrian camp, there's a high probability that when they find out we're from here, from the city, they're going to kill us and we're going to die. And their conclusion is, if we're going to die anyways, why don't we die moving forward? And I, when I, I remember reading the story a while back and I said to myself, I want to live my life with this perspective. If, if, if I'm only here for a limited time, if I'm going to die anyway one day, then why not live my life in such a way that before I die, I do something that makes a difference for eternity. Amen. I want to take the life I have and do something with it that will invest in not just today, but in what God is doing for all of eternity. See, part of, part of this happened for me is because when I was uh, 17 years old, my brother who was 12 years old died of cancer, right? And I'd never seen a dead body, never been to a funeral service, never been in front of a coffin. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at his body and I'm saying, I don't understand death. Of course, I'd never experienced this before. And I'm like, is this it? Is that all? And you're just gone? Like I couldn't get it because his body was there, but he was not there. He was gone. And I remember thinking to myself, sitting at that coffin, in front of that coffin, uh, when I was 17, 21 years ago, and I said to myself, before they dress me up and put me in a box, I want to do something with my life that will make a difference for eternity. Because I don't know how long I have. He only had 12 years. He didn't know it. I didn't know it. Our parents didn't know it. If you're going to die anyway, listen, and some of us are older than we think. I, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, I think during COVID, I, I bought one of those, you know, smart scales. You know those smart scales? You stand on it and it tells you all about, you know, not just the weight, you know. It tells you the body fat index and the BMI and all this stuff. You're already depressed looking at the weight. Now you get more depressed, you know. And anyways, so I, 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 I stand on it and, you know, I looked at it and it was all good. And then you, know, you pull up the app and you can read all the stuff it says. And then it said something like, you called it uh, metabolic age. 
This was back when I was like 35, I'm 38 now. And you know, my metabolic age was I think 40 or 42. I said, babe, I'm actually seven years older than I actually think I am. What they're saying is, bro, you're so out of shape. You're seven years older than you think you are, than what your birth certificate says. Here's my point. Some of us, we don't know how long we have. We don't know how much time we have. And the question is this, if you're dying anyway, would you die forward? Would you die in a way? Would you live in a way that says, I'm going to take my generations that are coming after me. I'm going to take them a step forward. I'm going to move them forward. So one of the things that people used to ask me when I first got into ministry, they're like, is your dad a preacher? Yeah, you have preachers in your family? How are you in ministry so young? Because I got into ministry when I was 18, 19 years old, coming out of my brother's death. And, and I remember saying to him, why do I have to stay where my father stayed? I want to go ahead of where my father went. I want my children to go ahead of where I went in God. I don't want to stay where my father stayed. I want to move forward. Every generation ought to die forward. Every generation ought to do something more than the previous one. Your children ought to pray better than you. Your children ought to know God's word better than you. Your children ought to worship God better than you. Your children ought to be able to communicate the gospel in a way that you were never able to do in this country, in this society. Everything that you do, you need to multiply multiply it over and over again in your generations. That's the call. That's the move. That's what God's calling us to do. I don't want to die here. I'm going to die anyway. I might as well die trying something. So you know what? You, I don't know if you guys know this show. It's called Shark Tank. I love watching Shark Tank. And this is a business show, right, for investors. And, and part of what they say is they're like, you know, they, when, when they invest in some people, some business owners, one of the things they look for is like, oh, they say, you're all in. You quit your job. You, you sold your house. Like you put everything into this. You're all in. And they say, well, I want to invest in you because you put everything into this enterprise. You're not holding anything back. Here's my question this morning, Western Road. Are you all into the mission of God? Are you all into Jesus? Are you all into what God is calling you to do? Or are you holding something back? The leper said, we have nothing left to lose. We're going to die anyway, so we're going to go forward in what God's calling us to do. What they didn't know is there was a prophetic word that had been prophesied by the prophet in the city. That, that grain would be, would be so cheap and, and, and barley would be so cheap and all of this stuff. There was a prophetic word. And everyone thought the prophet would fulfill the word. Nobody thought lepers would fulfill the prophetic word. Here's what I want you to know. You may hear a prophetic word of your life, but sometimes it's the lepers in our midst that will do what God's called them to do. Sometimes it's the most unlikely people. I tell people all the time, when I was growing up, I was so shy I could barely talk. I was so tongue-tied I could barely open my mouth. I was so shy of people. I'd never be, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't get my words out in class. I'd never ask a question in class because I was so afraid of listening to my own voice. My wife tells me I have the opposite problem now. She's like, you love listening to your voice. You know, but here's my point. Here's my point. People say to me all the time when I was, a, from people that knew me when I was a kid, they're like, I can't believe that you're a preacher. I can't believe you've traveled the world and you talk about Jesus and you hold a microphone. They're like, because this is not who you were. I'm, I'm like, yeah, exactly. Because God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the things that are wise. Come on, somebody. God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things that are strong. You may feel weak. You may feel foolish. But if you can think like the leper and say, I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to do what God told me to do. There is no saying what God will do through your life. Yeah. 
in chapter in verse 4 of John 9 Jesus says I've got to do the works of him who sent me the works of him who sent me can I can I can I encourage you with this today it's not your works when God calls you to do, see, listen, me preaching here, you think I should take credit for this? Uh-uh. This is not my work. This is the work God called me for. See, part of the challenge we have is we're like, pastor, I don't feel like doing this. You know, I don't feel like going and preaching the God. I don't feel like giving to this. I don't feel like sharing the gospel with my neighbors. I don't feel like leaving this wonderful building with all these people and going up north. I don't know how many people you have committed to the north side, but going up to the north with 30 people, let's say. I don't feel like, it's like it doesn't matter what you feel like. The question is, are you called to do it? It's not my works, it's God's work. I love in Luke 4, 42, uh, it says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, listen, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent. This is Jesus. He said, guys, I know you want me to stay, but I don't have the option to stay. I was sent for this purpose, meaning my mission is not actually my mission. It's the Father's mission for my life. It's time we start asking the questions of our life and say, hey, is this job my job or God's job? Is this house my house or God's house? Is where I got go to church my thing where I like the worship, I like the building, I like the pews they've got. Cushions, maybe, I don't know again, I don't know where you're going to be in the north. Maybe you're going to be in a school with some plastic chairs and you're like, uh, uh, uh no way, man. I like the sided western better. When I sit, there's a little bounce. Ooh, I like the bounce when I sit at church. That's what I want. See, there's a problem. See, it's not about what you like. It's what has God called you to be. In, in, in Matthew 12 and 14 Jesus talks about the, the, the parable of the talents and you know part of the in the parable of the talents the reason the master gets upset at the at the servant that buries the one talent you know why you know why because it was never that guy's talent I, I always miss this I'm like you're very harsh Jesus let the man do what he wants with his talent right that's up to him give it to, let him do what he, and I read it again I'm like wait a minute oh I get why you're upset because this is not his. It was given to him on loan to do something with it. See, when you have that perspective about your life, your finances, your children, your children, my dad was so upset when I decided I was going to go to Bible college at 18. I had all these prophetic words. I knew for sure there was all these confirmation. But he was so upset because, you know, he's an Indian father. And Indian people, they love for their children to get great secular education. They wanted me to get a master's, you know. And they wanted me to be an engineer. We had three boys. And, you know, like, you know, every, every Indian family, when you grow up as an Indian kid, if you're not Indian, you won't have any idea what I'm talking about. But if you grow up in an Indian household, your parents tell you when you're little, five years old, seven years old, eight years old, you know, ten years old, you know, little Kumar, you know. They look at little Kumar. And they say, Kumar, you can be anything you want to be in life. Doctor, engineer, lawyer, you choose. I said, Daddy, there's so many other professions. But in this house, those are the only three. That's what my daddy wanted. He was not happy with me doing it. But you know what I had to say eventually is, wait a minute, dad. I don't belong to you first. I belong to God first. I'm not your talent. I'm his talent. My life isn't your investment. It's his investment in the world. And if I am God's investment on the earth, then I better produce something for my heavenly father before I produce it for my earthly father. 
I'm not talking about don't honor your father and mother. Don't, don't misread me. But I'm saying, my dad just wanted to do the typical thing, cultural thing. Listen, guys, there's one culture. That's the culture of the kingdom of heaven. That culture comes before every other culture. And so, and so this idea that I've got to do the works, three things about the works of God. What are the works of God? If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. One is your consecration. Your consecration is a work of God. That doesn't happen on its own. You consecrating your life to God. You saying to God, my life belongs to you exclusively. To the exclusion of every other person or thing of this world that wants a piece of my life. You come first. You know, this is what happened with my grandfather. My grandfather, really quickly, uh, was a Brahmin Hindu. Okay, Brahmin, Brahmins are the highest caste in Hinduism. And uh, we're from South India. My family's from South India. He was in the Indian army in North India, and somebody shared the gospel message with him. He and his friends, they laughed at this gentleman who shared the gospel with him. And uh, they jokingly, mockingly said to the gentleman, if Jesus appears to me or us, there was a group of them, we will believe what you say. And so they were saying it, in a, in a way to mock him, to, you know, laughing at him, he said, really? He says, I'm going to pray that he'll appear to you. Well, soon enough, my grandfather wakes up in the middle of the night, completely rocked out of his world, and realizes that all of his friends woke up at the same time as well. The same group of people that heard the gospel shared from this person, this older gentleman, and they swapped stories, and they had all had the same vision of Jesus, calling them to follow him at the same time in the middle of the night. They go back to this person and they say to him, tell us more. He explains the gospel and they all get baptized. Now, now watch this. Now my grandfather comes back to South India and tells his family about his now consecration to Jesus. I'm not worshiping idols anymore. I'm going to worship Jesus. His father says to him, if you have, you have two options. Option one, you continue to be our son. You stay in this home and you follow our religion. Option two, you give yourself to this Jesus guy. You walk out of this house and you never come back and you are disinherited from everything I have. My grandfather chose option two. He, he literally, I think from what I understand, never had a relationship with his family after that because he had to give everything up, literally everything of value up for the sake of being consecrated and set apart to Jesus. Here's the question. Is the work of God of consecration of your life to Jesus first happening in your life and your heart. I love what one writer says. Listen to this. Millions call themselves by his name and pay some token homage to him, but a simple test will show how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof on the question of who or what is above, and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, God and self, God and human love, and God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However the man may protest, the proof is in the choice he makes day after day throughout his life. What are the choices you're making day after day throughout your life when it comes to the, consecra your, the, con the consecration of your life to Jesus? Number two, the works of God is your character. 
What do people around you say about you when it comes to your faith in Jesus? Romans 13, 12 says, And so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do you know that living a life that is honoring to God in the world you're living in is the work of God? Holiness is the work of God. What you worship, when you worship Jesus above all other things, that is the work of God. Um, you've probably heard of David Foster Wallace, who was a philosopher and writer. He, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, he actually eventually took his life because of depression. But he said this in a speech to a college class before he died. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. What are you worshiping? Like where do you put your mind, your heart, your passion? Like where are you? You know, I was, I was preaching in my, ch uh, my church um, recently and uh, again, this isn't to say that, you know, everyone has to stand and, you know, be expressive in church. Because I get it. Not everyone feels that way. And that's fine. But I was just talking to our church about, like, passion. Right? Passion. And I had gone to a game in Seattle to watch the Jays play the Mariners. Okay? And uh, I thought I was going to an away game, but it was like a home game. Because, of course, everybody in the, you know, in BC basically drives down to watch the Jays. Right? because that's the only Canadian team, of course, to really cheer for, and it's close enough to them. So they drive down to, um, to cheer the Jays. And you know what was crazy about it? I was sitting in that stadium. It was an amazing atmosphere. Um, grown men. Grown men. Screaming at the top of their lungs. Yelling. Yelling. Supportive of their team or yelling against the opposing team. People scrambling on top of each other when a ball is thrown over the net to the stands. You know, I saw one guy crawling on the floor. Another was up higher than, he was in the air, hands all the way up over all the other guys around him to catch the ball. And I said, and I'm, again, I'm not saying you should behave a certain way, but I'm saying when people say to me, oh, I'm, I just don't raise my hand too much, you know. I just don't like doing that. When people say to me, I'm just a quiet kind of person. I don't actually sing the songs out loud. I just think the songs in my brain. <laughs> and I'm not saying, I'm not knocking, that's fine. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying, when I go to culture, I see a stadium full of passionate people who are willing to scream, who are willing to jump, who are willing to crawl for a ball. <laughs> think about it. Because that means so much to them. 
if that's the case, how passionate should you and I be when it comes to worshiping the one who gave his life for you and me? And finally, number three, your consecration, your character, your commission is the work of God in your life. I love in Second Kings with the lepers, the story that we read. There's this moment where I think it's, um, it's really, it's a beautiful moment where introspection takes over um, greed, okay? Because what happens is, the Bible says, we read this already, which is that when they find the gold and the silver and the food and the wine, they begin to eat and drink. Then they take the gold and the silver and the clothing. I'm sure they put some on, right? But they couldn't, after you put so, uh, no, three garments on, you know what I mean? Fill your hands with gold and neck with gold chains. I mean, eventually you go, okay, I got to do something about the rest of this, okay? And they go, and the Bible says they, they hide it. They dig and they hide it. And you know what I thought of myself? You're lepers. You're lepers. How long do you think you will be alive? And where exactly are you going to do with all this gold and silver? Most of you don't have fingers. You don't have toes. One eye is gone. Half a nose is gone. Huh? You can put all the gold chains you want. You only look so pretty. You know what I mean? Like, let's just think about it for a moment. But, but see, that's human nature. Human nature is, huh, how much more can I get? How much more can I keep? How much more can I accumulate? It's never enough. That's what David Foster Wallace was talking about. It never is satisfied. Like you would think for a leper, one gold chain, two gold chains, a plate full of food for people that are starving, that after that they're like, that's it. What else? I don't need anything. I mean, this is great. I'm good. I'm set for life. No, 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 no. I want it all. Until one guy says, guys, guys, come on. This, some, and this is how he says it. Something bad is going to happen to us. If we get all this stuff, so that's how you know their initial plan. The initial plan was, we're not telling anyone. We're not telling anyone. So he says in response, guys, something bad will happen to us if we get this, all this stuff, and we don't tell the people in the city that are starving. When you sacrificially follow Jesus and fulfill his great commission to open your wallet, your car, your house, your talent, your abilities, your friendships for the sake of the gospel, that is the work of God in your life. I, um, I'm sure some of you probably, <clears throat> some of you probably saw this movie on Elvis. I think it came out last year or the year before. And it was really fascinating, you know, um, about his life. And, and basically the storyline, part of the storyline was that Elvis was being used by people for their own personal gain. And, and there's, this, there's, this, there's this moment when his manager, um, Colonel Tom Parker, says to... Elvis, because Elvis is like, I don't understand. After all these years of being the greatest, you know, artist in the world, singer in the world, I'm still broke. Like literally, he's still broke. And, and he says, he, this is what he says. He says, everyone you associate with has lived off of you, Mr. Presley. Even your own daddy, who was his personal agent, has looked after himself 
before he's looked after you. Here's the question. Do you use God so you can have a better life? Or do you live your life for him? And there is a difference. I want to read out a couple of stats for you before we close here. 2021 versus 2011. Only 53% of Canadians identify as Christians. That's a 14% drop. That's just nominal. That's just anyone that says, yeah, I grew up in a Christian church. I mean, actual church attendance in our nation is 5 to 6% right now. In the age group of 25 to 34, there was a 20% drop in people that identified as Christians between 2021 and 2011. One third of adults and half of teens and young adults in our country say they have no, zero religious affiliation. Here's my question. What are you doing about the state of this nation? How do you look at your life in light of what God wants to do in Canada, what God wants to do in the greater Toronto area. And, and, and if I can take a moment even, how many of you were not born in Canada? Raise your hands. Not born in Canada. Okay, I would say that's hmm, 70% of this room. Let me say this to you. God did not bring us to this country because I was not born here. I came here when I was 18 so that we could have a better life. That's the lie that we've been told. My parents told that lie too. I, I don't believe I came here for a better life. I will have a better life because of living in Canada. There's no, the poorest person in our country is better off than middle class people anywhere in the world. So I will have a better life. But I didn't come here. Listen to what I'm saying. Not that I shouldn't get a job, not that I shouldn't go to school, not that I shouldn't make money, none of that. I should do all of it. But the ultimate purpose was not to have a better life. The ultimate purpose of any Christian is that where I go, I am able to fulfill the mission of God and communicate the message of Jesus to the people that he takes me to. He will use the excuse of a job on the 10th floor of a building somewhere so I can get around people that don't know Jesus. He'll use the excuse of a beautiful home in a nice neighborhood so I can talk to a neighbor who I would otherwise never interact with, but now I will when we shovel the snow and when we mow the lawn. He will use the excuse of all of those things, but the purpose, the purpose isn't so I can have, live a better life. Because there are so many people who have come into this country that have turned off listening from the Holy Spirit because they have bought into the lie, Holy Spirit, stay right there. Let me first make a better life for myself. This last year, StatsCan said one million new people have come into Canada. One million. It's a, it's a record. We've never brought in more than a million people in any calendar year. The last 12 months, we brought more than 1 million people. I was in, I was in, um, I was in Edmonton speaking uh, earlier this year. I was talking to my Uber driver, who was a Ghanaian um, young man. Um, I don't know if there's anyone from Ghana, anyone from Ghana here? Uh, Ghanaian young man. And uh, 
he um, he came to Canada with his parents, and he has, speaks great English, and you know, is professional, is in school, and all this stuff. And I was talking to him about his sense of mission. And you know what he said to me? He says, "Well, you know, I don't think I can do any of that. I think I'm just going to go to my little Ghanaian church and you know, say everything, you know, sing in twee and speak in twee and do all that kind of stuff, you know. And and I'm just going to do that." And I said to him, "I said, sir." What if God brought you to this country? What if God gave you the ability to speak this language that he says his parents are not as fluent in? What if God puts you in a professional environment in Canada so that you can be a witness to the gospel of Jesus? You see, what we don't sometimes believe or understand is that the God who opens the eyes of the blind is the God who is with you and me when we walk around our lives, walk, walk through our lives. Meaning, in other words, I'm going to close with this. If I can get Rachel to maybe come up on the keys, that'd be great. Um, when, when you look at what, what happens in John 9, the disciples say, whose sin is it that this man was born blind? Jesus says, it's not because of sin, it's for the glory of God. What he's saying is this, many people need to believe. For them to believe, his blindness and then his healing is going to open their eyes to see that I am who I say I am. Here's my point. Everything we do ought to be for the glory of God. And what Jesus says to the disciples is that the works of God might be revealed. Can I say this to you? The works of God ought to be revealed through your life. For too long, for too long, we have bought into the idea that it's all based on me. People don't take steps of faith. People don't step out in faith. People don't try new things because it's like, well, I can't do it. I don't have the ability. Guys, I understand that. I understand comfort. I understand, you know, when my friends went to, went, to, went to engineering school, right? All of my Indian friends, they all went to professional school. I understand it. They have better lives. They have bigger, you know, homes than I do and better cars than I do. And, and they live better lives. They make lots more money than I do. I get it. Comfort is tempting. I get it. I get the fear. Because when, when you're somebody that doesn't have confidence to talk out loud in public and God tells you to do this, what I'm doing, man... I mean, they say public speaking is one of the number one fears in the world, right? Yeah, I get being afraid. But you know what I realized? Is that there's something called the works of God. The works of God are things that only God can do. And those are things that you will never find out about unless you step out in faith. When I talk about this, you know, I talk about the story of my, of my daughter going swimming. You know, Lauren, who you saw sitting in my lap there in the picture, you know, when she was like last year, now she's going to swimming lessons and stuff, but she's, you know, still not quite there. But last year, you know, when we were out um, on vacation and stuff, you know, she'd, she'd love to go to, um, when we'd stay in hotels, she'd love to go to the hotel pool, right? And I'd, I'd get to the hotel pool and Lauren was so excited about swimming. Daddy, I can't wait to swim. And she'd have a swimsuit on and we'd go to the, the, the pool and, uh, and, and, and she was ready to swim. The only problem was Lauren doesn't know how to swim. So when she says, I'm excited about swimming, what she means is when we both get into the water, she says, okay, daddy, now put your arms out. So I put my arms out just under the water line because she still got to feel like she's swimming. And she lays on, on me, chest first, on my hands. 
and now I have to walk around the circumference of the pool with my daughter and you know what's interesting you know you think okay she just relax you know because obviously she knows daddy is holding her Uh uh-uh no 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 she is splashing in the water her legs are chopping in the water I mean if you saw this child from the outside of the pool and my hands are under the water line so you won't know you would think this child is swimming in the deep end it's like unbelievable stuff anyways so I do this and then when I'm done you know I wrap a towel around her, we get back upstairs into the room in the hotel and she walks in before me and she announces to her mother, Mommy, I had an amazing swim. You know what happens? You know why I get upset? She never ever mentions me. She gives me no credit. She says, Mommy, I had a swim. And sometimes that's what we do with our Heavenly Father. We tell the world, I got a degree, I got a job, I bought a new house, I got to do this new thing, I got a promotion at work, my, my, I, it's always you and you don't realize there's everlasting arms holding you just under the waterline. No one sees it, but that job, that was God. That promotion, that was God. Your visas, if you're an immigrant to Canada, that was God. Like, like these things are God's work. That spouse sitting next to you, that you're like, oh yeah, I caught a good one. Hey, that wasn't your fishing ability. That was God. God put her in that coffee shop. God put her in that church. God put her in front of you. God brought you together. Let me close with this. It's a quote by pastor I admire, Timothy Keller. And then we're going to pray. He's talking about, in Ephesians 1, when Paul talks about God's abundant, incomparable power. He says, when Paul talks about God's power, he says in Ephesians 1, I pray that you would know the incomparably great power of God incomparably great what's really neat about it is in the greek it's hyperbalo megatos dunamis you can almost hear it in the english right it's it's that we have english versions of those words hyperbalo megatos dunamis the hyperbolistic megatonic dynamite of god he says keller says this is what paul says he says think about this a nuclear warhead is a thousandth of the power of a hurricane, yet the Bible says the Lord sits enthroned over the hurricane. A hurricane is just a billionth of the power of just one eruption on the surface of the sun, which is just a small star. And the Bible says God scatters stars like sand. The power of the sun is just one millionth of the power of, of a supernova. And the supernova is just one of the infinite number of points of power in the universe. So what is the power of God? Is it a million universes? No, no. Paul says he's beyond beyond. He's greater than great. Even as we sit here and try to imagine this, we haven't even come to the outskirts of his power. Jesus Christ says it doesn't matter how insufficient you are. The gospel is this. Put whatever you have into my hands and my power will come through you like a freight train. Super abundantly. More than you can imagine. Destroying the power of death at work in your life. That's the power of God. That's the power of God. The power that opens blind eyes. 
Let's stand in the presence of the Lord today. Here's my question to you. Do you believe God can open blind eyes? Do you believe that the power of God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than what you could ever ask or imagine? Do you believe that the God, you know, we sang the song earlier. Maybe I can get the worship team to come up as well. We sang the song earlier about the battle belonging to Jesus. The battle belongs to God. You know, I, I love in that passage in, in Kings, what it says about, you know, some of you are wondering, well, Finu, you didn't wrap up the story. How did, why did the Syrians leave? You know what it says? It says when four lepers, so, so that's not even 40 toes. Okay, they're missing some toes probably as lepers. Four lepers walk lightly to the Syrian camp. The Bible says, God made the Syrians hear chariots, armies. You know what's amazing? If you and I would believe that when our feeble feet take steps of faith towards the calling of God for our life, that the God of heaven's armies will cause chariots, will cause armies to begin to march on behalf of you and behalf of me. That before you even get there, I love this whole idea of the second sight. Before you even get to that second sight, before you even show up in 2024, whatever the date is supposed to be, that God says, I'm already working. I'm already on the move. I'm already doing something that's going to shock you because you just have to obey. I'll do the work. If you obey, God does the work. Eyes closed. Father, we come to you today. We come to you today. We come to you today believing that the hyperbolistic, megatonic power of God, dynamite of God, the incredible power that created the universe, all powerful all-knowing, ever-present power of God is in this room right now. Is in this room right now. That the purpose of God's people, the destiny of God's people, the calling of God's people is being released and reinforced right now. That Lord, there are many in this room right now that, that, that are taking a step of faith in making decisions to say, God, I've been comfortable for too long. God, I've been afraid for too long. God, I want to make decisions based on the fact that night is coming. Night is coming. I don't know when it's coming. I don't know how it's going to come, but it's coming. I only have so much time. I only have so much resources. I only have so much energy. I only have so much money. I only have so much of what you've given me. God, I want to do what I can with what I have. For the sake of your kingdom. For the sake of your mission. So if that's you right now, you're saying, Fanu, I want to experience the power of God in and through my life for the mission of God to be fulfilled in my generation, in my city, 
in my town, in my neighborhood. Whatever, whatever that scope is that God is calling you to. Maybe some of you have a burden for Canada and you're saying, man, I know this, man. I, God brought me to this country because Canada needs the gospel and I want to be a part of that in some small way. I want to contribute and I'm asking this morning for the power of God to come upon my life in a fresh way so I can be used by God to do something significant with my life. If you're saying that, would you raise your hand right now? Father, we thank you. We thank you for every hand that is raised. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would use your people that through their lives, through their witness, so many would come to know you. And that Father, the, the power that you've promised us for healing would come upon those who need healing today. The power that you promised us, Lord, for deliverance would come upon those who feel like they are in bondage in some way today. Maybe there's an addiction that they cannot break free from. Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, would you deliver them from that addiction? Lord, would you heal them from that sickness, that disease, that pain right now? Father, for those that need grace to endure pain, would you allow your grace to come upon them right now? Right now in the name of Jesus. For those, Lord, who are called to step out into ministry vocationally, and they're afraid, they're afraid to take that step of faith. Lord, right now, would you speak to them? Would you speak to them, Lord? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. As we sing that song together as a church, I want you to believe the God who fights your battles. He's on your side and he'll give you the victory. Thank you so much for listening to the Sermon of the Week. God wants to work in your life and we want to hear it. Please take a moment to share your story by emailing amen at westonroadchurch.com. Thanks again for joining us. We hope listening to this week's message has equipped you to be the light wherever you go.